However, with that promise in mind and the work of God at hand, the Apostle Paul had concerns in his day, which was at the dawn of the church, and with all the lies and deceptions perpetrated upon the church by the devil for 2,000 years, should we not be extremely careful and more worried than the Apostle Paul? Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, there is no better place to be <clears throat> than prostrate at your feet. I know, Lord, that you are worthy of honor and respect like no created being. Even the greatness of the angels, we think of uh, Michael and angels that glorify you at the giving of the law. You know, the delight is to protect, to declare your law. They have your heart, your law undoubtedly in their hearts. They've been good, they'll always be good. And they stand before the throne of God and they see your face. I ask, dear Heavenly Father, that you would be with us as we consider the glories to come. I'm not sure of, Lord, how this will pan out, but I, I do pray that you would hide your servant behind the cross, that we might see Jesus, that we might see him in his glory. He's the one who deserves the honor and the praise and the glory for all things, from creation right through redemption. We ask, dear Lord, that he would be glorified as we just consider shortly, quickly, these, these few words. May we see him as the word reveals him. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are today going to look at or listen to episode 65, The Glory of the Lamb, with uh, assorted verses. You know, in the movie Glory, men once resigned to slavery willingly gave their lives to death for the freedom of others. In the greatest act of courage and superficial love ever, the Son of God lovingly gave himself to obedience for his Father's glory. All God's sons and brethren to Jesus are all called to the same end, though it may be may not be to martyrdom. We are called to give our lives away and follow Jesus. Jesus said, and I quote, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny or refuse to associate with himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
That's Matthew 16, 24 and 25. I think it's self-explanatory there that there is a death to self that God desires. The fact is we all have opinions and as gods in our own eyes, we're more willing to listen to our own counsel sometimes than that of God. Death for the saint begins with the Bible as the final answer for everything. If you don't think that's true, you may want to listen with special attention to this message. You know, by Jesus' account, John the Baptist was the greatest of all the Old Testament saints. Now, you can read through the commentaries, and, you know, they're not all the same, of course, but, you know, you're going to get a good substantial amount that are going to say that Jesus' statement, you know, is really about John's proximity in time with Jesus. That's what they'll tell you. That's what they think. But consider this. No prophet's voice could be heard or was heard for 400 years until John appeared. He then is called to speak about the coming Messiah prophesied for thousands of years. And John then gets all the attention. So you got all these prophecies, you got no speaking for 400 years, and then John is front and center. This past week, I was told by two different people who are uh, acquainted with a certain pastor in our area who by his church members is treated, I guess, something of a celebrity. You know, when he goes, I was told by one, and these are two different people in two different places, two different times. You know, when when he goes to a place, by the one, you know, he's, he's got an entourage. And the other one said pretty much the same. You know, neither of the two people, um, as they expressed their concern about these things, were impressed by what they saw in any way. Maybe depressed a little bit. You know, Jesus said, and I quote, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no way to lay his head. And remember, as pastors and teachers and preachers, you know, we represent Jesus. There was a time when people took vows of poverty and all of that, and I'm not advocating necessarily that people need to make themselves poor, um, but an entourage, really? Jesus spoke these words in response to the man who said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. It's okay to be loved and respected. But you know, when, when Jesus said foxes have holes and the birds have nests and son of man has nowhere to lay his head, he wasn't denying us love and respect by other people. The, the point is we, we must have the uttermost care that God gets the glory through our lives and not ourselves. Jesus did preach in the Sermon on the Mount And he did say, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. You know, taking the first seat is not what Jesus likes. You know, take the lower seat, we're told. And then then leave it to God to put who he wills where. You know, we should not take these words lightly. 
to glorify our Father and through who we think ourselves to be. And those, that belief will translate into action or words or bodily, you know, the way we, body language and all of that. John responded to his followers when asked about the people that were leaving his ministry to follow Jesus by saying, he who has the bride is the groom, but the friend of the groom who stands and listens to him rejoices greatly because of the groom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Yeah, I don't think it was just proximity and time that Jesus was talking about. I think the greatest men in biblical history are seen for their humility as they kneel before the God of all creation. Moses, David, Job, John were not great in and of themselves. They were great because God exalted them to give him the glory. And they did it very well. I wish we could all do it that well. John walked away from the glory of proclaiming Christ willingly. He put Herod's feet to the fire, provoked the religious leaders of his day, like big time, like Elijah on Mount Carmel, and only wandered in the darkness, wandered in the darkness that was passing away concerning the revelation of the promised Messiah, and in the end lost his head as a result of his faithfulness. However, by Jesus' proclamation, he stands head and shoulders over the rest. Why? Just because he proclaimed Christ? Or because of his humility in doing so? I'm going to go with the latter. The bride did not belong to John. It belongs to Christ. I mean, he said as much. He said exactly that. I think pastors, this word goes out to you if you're listening, would do well to consider to whom the bride belongs. No man is head of the church. We can shepherd, we can be under shepherds, we can take a responsibility, but walk softly, walk lightly when it comes to your position. Don't hold authority too tight or at all. Give it up, throw it away. Just throw it away. The church, which is Jesus' bride, is to be in sync with the Holy Spirit in all things. And not just Revelation twenty-two seventeen that says the Spirit and the bride say, Come, which we should say, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take of the water of life without cost. You know, that's our responsibility. That's our calling. There is the church as it is in reality and in time. There is what the church will become. As we are told in Isaiah 62, 1, 4, and 5, it says this, For as Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. 
as a lamp that burns. We can hear very clearly in this first part of this verse, I will not rest. And in those words, I will not rest, we see that we see the heart of God. We see the heart of God that He's just He's working on something and He's not going to get rest until it's done. He goes on, he says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, which he did, neither shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephazbah. My delight is in her. That's what that word means. And in your land, Beulah, married. For Jehovah delights in you. And your land shall be married. Exactly what he says. And that's what that word means, married. For as long as man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you. He's viewing his people, this whole plan, as a marriage, and as a marriage to a virgin, as to a bride. I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. Now remember, there's no virgin uh, when we look at the fact that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin is primarily an attack on God. It is first and foremost idolatry. First and foremost because idolatry parallels adultery. So there's no virgin. It's, it's forsaking the one true God for other gods, for another God. It's adultery. It's leaving the marriage relationship, the covenant. It's, it's leaving the one who created us and gave us life, and it's going over to another. So no matter what sins there are, we sin against one another and lie and cheat and steal and, and do all the ugly things that I don't even want to go into, but the meanness, the pride of life, the lusts of the flesh, all of that, all of that is just summing up a hatred that God ha- that people have for God. And you can see it in all the religions that are all false. There's just only one. And it's only a remnant within that religion that's true. People who are chosen by God to experience His grace and salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not of works. Lest any man boast. Nobody walking around heaven saying, look how I got here. Yeah, not going to happen. I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness. Who's going to do that? I'll tell you what, God. However, with that promise in mind and the work of God at hand, the Apostle Paul had concerns in his day, which was at the dawn of the church, And with all the lies and deceptions perpetrated upon the church by the devil for 2,000 years, should we not be extremely careful and more worried than the Apostle Paul? I mean, the apostles aren't even around now. People claim to be apostles. But there's only 12 stones on the foundations of the New Jerusalem. And uh, those 12 names. That's it. There's no 13th apostle. 
Second Corinthians chapter 11, you know, gives us his concerns. This is Paul writing to the church then. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betroth you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his trickery, your minds will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom you, we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, this you tolerate very well. What's he saying? They heard the truth in the beginning. They, they got it. They, they heard and they understood and they followed the gospel at the beginning. But it didn't take long for them to get off track. Now, Jesus is determined, determined that he will not rest until her righteousness goes forth. I mean, he's going to work it out one way or another. Right now, what we're concerned about is the choices we make, whether or not we're humble and walking in the grace of God, you know, or we walking around with an entourage, maybe just in our minds, maybe just in our hearts who we think we are. You know, I've done this wonderful thing, and I, I've received the gospel, and God's changed me, and I'm doing, and, you know, let's stop and think for a minute. You know, it's hundreds of years now since Charles Finney and men have actually absorbed and think they're preaching the right gospel when in fact, you know, they're not. What do I mean by that? Well, let me tell you what salvation is not. Okay, just to be clear about Paul's concern, he had it for the Corinthians, he had it for the Galatians, it's in the New Testament, there's concern in for all the churches except two in Revelation. But throughout the New Testament epistles, there's a lot of concerns about a lot of things. Concerning the gospel, which he was concerned at Galatian, to the Galatian churches, you know, much, I, I'm concerned today. And this is, let's, let's, let's say what salvation is not and try to clarify the gospel, okay? Walking an aisle and saying a prayer that creates no lasting change in the heart, that's not the gospel. Calling ourselves sinners without experiencing a guilty conscience, or really clarifying sin, this is not the gospel. Speaking words of guilt from a heart that has not first been made alive by God's Spirit is not the gospel. Attending a church for the sole purpose of to feel better about ourselves, this, this is not the gospel. Filling out a card and recording the date without being born again in the, in the newness of life, which includes, by the way, an intimate relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the gospel. Intimacy is where you get to know someone. So I'm going to ask you, do, you, do you really getting to know Jesus Christ? I know about George Washington. You know, I could see him in his dress and pictures. I can understand what he did as a general and as a president. I can, I've been to his house, you know, but I never met the man. I can't say I know 
or I knew George Washington. Not going to happen. Never talked to him. Never looked into his eyes. Never behaved, saw his behavior. Never saw how he interacted with other people. Not, didn't, didn't, you know. I, now, through faith, a person can read the accounts of Jesus Christ being the perfect living word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit even to the joint marrow of the bone, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, a person can really get to know Jesus through that word. But going through the rigors of Christian disciplines without an authentic love for Jesus, this is not the gospel. Attending church without a love for God's word, without experiencing the fullness that only obedience to God by separating from worldliness and the world can bring? This is not the gospel. We're separated at this time from the world. Peter said exactly that. This is the gospel. Christianity is not about perfection, but it is about direction. And we only get the direction right when we get the gospel right. Jesus is the way. You've got to get the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the gospel of Finney or any false prophet or any sheep in wool, any wolf in sheep's clothing. You've got to get it from the Word. Not a man. And if you're, it's okay to give respect and honor to men, particularly if they really, really deserve it and they really speak the, the gospel accurately. But if you follow men, you might be surprised in the end that they didn't get it as accurate as you thought. A day is coming when we all will have to give an account to God for how we built the church. That's right. This is not for the lost, but for the saved. It's not just for pastors and shepherds. It's for everyone. Everyone is called as they go into the world to make disciples. I'm not gifted, blah, 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 blah. Well, I'm sorry, but that's the way the scripture reads. As you go, he said, and we're all going, make disciples. The, uh, the mother, while she's attending to her home and she's living at home and she's not working, and I'm not criticizing working, although there is a, a place for a mother to do her, you know, fulfill her motherhood. The mother who fulfills her motherhood and shares the gospel, even though she's not, she's not able to convert souls, but as she shapes her children, and when they come to Christ by His grace, and she shares the Word of God accurately and consistently and living it out as an example, she is making disciples. Whether it's that or any other person, who is meant to learn the Word of God so that they can share it through their experience and their knowledge of, of Jesus Christ, that's making disciples. I mean, let, let's not narrow down making disciples to standing behind a pulpit or speaking into a microphone and preaching a sermon. That's not what making disciples is limited to. Let's not go there. We should understand our responsibility. If we build with gold and silver and precious stones that will stand the fire of God's judgment, which we all will at the bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, 
not as lost, but as saved men. We will be found faithful. He said as much. You were faithful. This is what we're looking for. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. We will experience fullness of joy if we build with gold and silver and precious stones. If we build with wood and hay and stubble, we will suffer loss, but we will be saved yet as through fire. Do we as people bought with the blood and sufferings of Christ Jesus take this judgment lightly simply because our entrance into heaven is guaranteed? Really? I mean, I am reasonably sure that that is a bad plan. Because I don't want to stand before the Lord, and I'm going to suffer loss. I just want to minimize it. I don't want to stand before the Lord, look into His face, who suffered an eternity of hell in my place, and then see anything burned up. I will, but I do not. I dread the thought of it. Because to tell you the truth, I think every true Christian would. Let me, let me tell you why. Revelation 21, 1 through 3, says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, Prepared as a bride, adorned, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Did you hear that? And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. You know, I've read this so many times. And in the back of my mind, I think I've always had this question, but I never really pursued it. During our present hour, as we read the words of Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem represents the bride of the Lamb. It's not the bride of the Lamb specifically we're looking at in this passage. What we're looking at in this passage is the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem, whatever material it's made out of, is not the bride. The bride, of course, is made of the saints. Those people who have been brought into the kingdom and have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the God's dear Son. It's people. But we don't have that picture here as it's referring to the bride of the Lamb. We have the New Jerusalem. Now, you know, when we looked at marriage last time, we're looking at this whole picture of one flesh relationship, and it's, but it's, it's hidden as a mystery in marriage. It's, it's out in the open. It's, it's front and center. It's clearly understood, but at the same time, 
there's this mystery of Christ and the church from, Hebrew, uh, from Ephesians chapter 5. Here, we have this matter of the bride, and uh, I heard with a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, but yet the new Jerusalem comes down. So what's going on here exactly? Well, whether it's during this age, um, and we read from the scriptures about the new Jerusalem, or it's in the thousand-year millennial kingdom when Christ rules among his people. In, in, e- in either case, the bride is not revealed. It's going to come out in a few minutes. But the, re- the revealing of the bride isn't to, until a later date. Let me get to it. The, br- the bride always remains hidden until the moment of her appearing. The church age will end as the tribulation begins with an attempt to revolt against God by the nations, Psalm 2, you know, really carried out to the max. The revolution is turned against the world, however, as God brings punishment upon the world's head as he restructures the earth and returns it to a pre-Diluvian age where men can live long lives and there's a canopy of, of uh water around the earth and the air is, you know, and the genetics are changed and all these things going on. So for 1,000 years, the bride will still not be revealed in all her glory before those who dwell on the earth as the saints reign with Christ. The revelation of the bride will not happen until the old heaven and the earth pass away. And... uh, when they pass away and there's a new heaven and a new earth created, that's when the bride appears. In Revelations 21 and 22, God gives us a description of the new Jerusalem, not the bride. The bride dwells within the holy city of God and God dwells among his people there. In verse 3, we, re- we read the word among And it's used three times, three times in one short burst of truth about God's place among his people. I've asked myself, you know, why why does God use the word among and not in? I mean, we're the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit, and God dwells within this tabernacle, and he's dwelling within each individual person. And as the whole body comes together, God is present within each specific part. And so it's in. He's in us. What I found in Greek is that the word among is the word meta, a preposition. Properly, it means after and with. It implies a change afterward. I'm getting this from the Greek scholars. It results after an activity. As an active with, meta looks toward the after effects. After effects of what? After effects of something. It's an, it's a change as a result of an action which is only defined by the context. You know, you want to ask, you know, what's the effect from? Okay, well, it's, it's the action which is only defined by the context. So what's the context? So our context is a new heaven and earth. It's the change that the saints, of the saints into a glorified form 
whereby they behold the glory of God unbelievably face to face. Immediately following the great white throne judgment, the lost will be thrown into the lake of fire, and as far as the saints are concerned, they will go out of existence. They will be in existence, but not in our existence, in where we will be. It's as if they don't exist anymore. Is what I'm saying is what the Bible says. Just the way the old heaven and earth go out of existence. There's no place found for them. That's what the scripture says. Even so, the lake of fire and the destruction of the wicked go that, to that place. Um, some want to read that as not existing anymore. Well, as far as the heaven and earth, that's true. But God takes that same substance, if you will, or whatever it is, energy, and he creates a new heaven and a new earth <clears throat> with a little clue that there's no sea there, meaning it's probably not a water-based world as the first one was. Um, the answer from God was, and um, this is from Exodus chapter 33, where Moses um, is asking to see God's face. And and the reason I'm saying this is because the saints, when I said go from perfection to after the after effect of salvation, when sanctify, sanctification is completed in glorification. And as I was leading up, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead on this on this picture we have with Moses. But when everything goes out of existence and there's a new heaven and a new earth, then the saints will go from perfection, like if I were to die right now, according to Hebrews chapter 12. Um, one of the things stated there is the souls of righteous men. We go before not a fiery mountain like at the giving of the law, but the new Jerusalem. It's a place of joy and peace and salvation. And in that place, it's the right now if I were to die and go there, it would, I would be the soul of a righteous man made perfect. That's the way it's placed. So we go on to perfection. There's no resurrection body and there's no glorified body. There's a resurrection body for the millennial kingdom and there's a glorified body. There's the first resurrection. I mean, there's a second resurrection. The first resurrection, you know, is there is not glorification. So in this context, I want to look at Moses from Exodus 33 where he asked to see God's glory and the answer from God was, quote, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. God placed Moses in the cleft of the rock, covered him with his hand so he couldn't only see God's back and not his face as he passed by. I'm sure a lot of people question, well, what does all of that mean? Well, I think we can look at it safely this way that Moses was allowed at that time to see God's mercy. But to see God's righteousness would have destroyed him. Now, I'm, I'm kind of a little in deep water here. Um, and so I'm not asking you know, for you to see this as the word of God. Um, I, there has to be meaning behind. And I was even asking myself in my quiet time, I was saying, you know, what exactly does all of this mean? 
And there's this idea of sinful man can't stand before Almighty God. Now that may be true, um, but then I, I ask myself, well, how does Satan, I mean, I, I think he's fairly sinful, uh, although he may not be in a body, you know, but he goes before God as in Job, you know, and there's communication and he's speaking to God. Now, maybe he's just before the throne and maybe ungodly angels can go before the throne. Whatever's going on in these situations, it's clear that Moses was told right here. This is definitely what he's told. You cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. That is an absolute. Yet, angels of God before, go before the throne. Does that mean that they're seeing God's face? No, it isn't. I've never been there. I don't know exactly what's going on. But I know the Bible is always consistent. And there's always consistency in truth. And so there has to be a consistency here. And so if the devil's standing before God, I'd have to say he's not seeing God's face. Whatever he's seeing, he's not seeing that. I don't think people are going to go out of existence. Um, it's about death. No man can see my face and live. We just take it for what it is. Again, I'm, I'm out of my depth a little bit here. But we, there's certain facts we have to deal with. As incomprehensible as it is, a day is coming when the sta- saints will stand in the light of the Lord due to the after effect and change at our glorification. I think this is absolutely true. Why, why do I say that? You know, in Romans chapter 8, and in Romans chapter 8, there is a very interesting verse, and you know, just about everybody is familiar with these verses, as in verse 28. So in, in Romans 8, just turn in there. Sorry for the delay. You know, we read, these, we read this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. What's the purpose? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So the purpose is conformity to Christ. Let's hold on to that thought. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So now we have Christ in a brother-to-brother relationship with the saints. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You know, there's something missing in there. So he goes from justification to glorification. There's no sanctification in there. Isn't that interesting? No no sanctification. Sanctification is being called out for a holy purpose, right? God is sanctified in that he's separate from his creation. We're sanctified when we are separated unto him. He's separated by reason of there's God and then there's everything that came out of nothing. Then there's sanctification, which is created beings who are worldly, sinful, rebellious, who are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, 
And they are called alongside of God to serve him in his holy purpose. So we are made holy in being sanctified, but sanctification doesn't appear in Romans chapter 8. It's justified and it's glorified. Now there's a reason why the Apostle Paul left out sanctification, didn't forget it. This is under the inspiration of Almighty God, but it's left out. This coming alongside is changed when we get to glorification. We go from everything being washed away and justified in the courtroom of God, and all our sins are washed away, and we're made just, just as He is just. Then there's this process of sanctification, even though it begins when we're called alongside, and the, all of the process is eliminated in this verse, and it goes straight to glorification, which has no process attached to it. It's kind of like when we are changed in the twinkling of an eye, which is faster than blinking an eye. It's something to do with the pupil, and it's just instantaneous. I mean, instantaneous, done. No process, bam, done. And you go from a perfect saint, a righteous, perfect saint, to glorification, which is different. It's a different condition. It's a different state. It's a different sense of being. And I get that partly from Revelation chapter 22. And it says this, There will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine or illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. God will accomplish this through the person and work of his beloved son, whom he did not spare on our behalf. I mean, think of it. We have trusted in Christ, and we who have trusted in Christ will be at home in the burning light of God's righteousness. At that moment, we will know what predestined to the conformity of God's beloved Son means in glory. The saints alongside God for eternity, we will walk alongside Him, with Him, in total agreement. This is a transformation, I think, that supersedes any sanctification that we understand. You know, it's one thing to be conformed to the image of God's Son. It's another thing to be in His presence, His righteous and holy presence with Him throughout all eternity. I, I really believe that that's what we're talking about in glorification. There's a distinct difference in Romans between sanctification, which God, Paul takes pains to explain in Romans 6 and 7 and 8. And then at the end of that 8, there's this glorification that will yet take place. We're in the sanctification process. We're not in the presence of God. We don't behold God face to face. And I don't think that will or has happened even in heaven with the holy angels until the old heaven and earth go out of existence. All sinful creatures 
go to this place that's known as the lake of fire. And they're out of it into a different dimension than the, what we're talking about here with the glory of God. But think of the glory of God and then think of hell or think of the lake of fire as the absence of God's presence in all that he is. Only the presence of his anger, his holy hatred of sin, there in, in that place of torment. I was reading this past week where a demon confronts Jesus or is confronted by Jesus in the Gadarenes. And it says to Jesus, have you come to torment us before the time? God will torment angels and people forever by his holy righteousness in anger. Not a righteousness that's all God is, but the righteousness of his anger. The glory of the Lamb as reproduced in his bride is what we're talking about in this message. It's not just talking about the, the Lamb, the bride of the Lamb. We're talking about the glory of the Lamb as it's reproduced in his bride. You know, Revelation 12, 11 says, And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. I can't imagine glory. I'm like just standing on the edges of an ocean trying to explain what I can't. I, I know that there's a fullness of God, there's a righteousness of God, a holy righteousness that not even Moses, this beloved servant of God who brought the law to men by the hand of God was allowed to look into the face of God. But one day, There'll be no sun, there'll be no light. You know, God said once, let there be light. That's done away with. And the light that illuminates everything is God's glory. The light of his glory. This is not just like light, like we know light. This is not created light. This is the light of God's presence. And the light of God's presence more than we understand it here. You know, you, you have those pictures of God coming down to see what happened at Babel. You know, he enters into the garden. There's revival that takes place in history. Pentecost. Souls are saved. God's present. People are on their faces. People are mourning over their sins. This is a presence, the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle and with Moses and Israel. They, they couldn't even enter. Isaiah standing in the doorway. Can't go in. Only the train is there. The picture in Revelation, it's not the train. It's God in all his glory, giving the light so we can see and see like with eyes that we could never behold now. This is big. This is bigger than we realize. This is not light like we know it. This is the light of God. And we have been by identification with Christ as saints, been brought to this place, place of sharing his glory. It's not our glory. It's his intrinsic glory. It, we, we do not have the intrinsic glory of God. We just have through identification with Christ, Romans chapter 5, we have been identified with him in his death and his resurrection 
And we're being sanctified and we will be glorified when it's all over. When all the judgments are done. When now we enter into an eternal state. And who knows what that's going to be like. But we're going to reign with him. That's how God leaves us in the book of Revelation 22. Reign over what? Do what? I'm not going to conjecture. I have no clue. All I know is the reigning will be in righteousness. In the presence of the living, glorified God. So far beyond our comprehension, you, you can't go there. We can't go there now. But we will. And it will be glory. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for a message that's beyond us. The comprehension of it is beyond us. We shouldn't be surprised. Everything is. How is God everywhere at the same time? What, what, is, it? what is everywhere? God knows all things. Like every, the smallest minute part of the creation within the, the cells of our body that's like a factory that we can't see with, except with an electronic microscope. And then we can't see it all, I'm sure. And you know it all. You, every piece, you got it all down. All at the same time, you know everything. And you're eternal. Always been. Lord, all we can do is get down on our face, glorify you and worship, and say, Lord, I'm nothing. I'm just like the dust of the earth. I'm on my face. I'm, uh, I'm created. I've been redeemed. It's all you. Creation is all you. Redemption is all you. It's all about you. There's, there's just nothing. I'm nothing. I'm worse than nothing because I'm a sinful nothing. All the glory for all eternity belongs to the living God. Let us just, Lord, your church today, be a people willing to give you the glory that you alone deserve and that you reveal on the cross and at the resurrection from the dead. We desire, Lord, your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.